They're the unmarked patrol and pursuit cars Australian police are driving right now. Are they keeping us safer? Do you know what to look out for? Yes, it's time to strap in for another edition of the Cars Guide podcast, the show that takes you beyond the test drive. This is episode 194, Red and Blue, Hide and Seek. I'm Cars Guide Deputy Editor James, and joining me to discuss this specific form of undercover police work are staff journalist Tom Hello. and key contributor Byron. G'day. We'll open the B&D roller door and peer into the far reaches of the Cars Guide garage in these COVID-constrained times, looking back on our hero cars and memorable drives. Then we'll hit the highlights of your feedback. Uh, YouTubers, if you want to plot your own adventure, you can jump ahead courtesy of the time codes in the notes below, and you can click on the chapter markers in the timeline. So let's hit the start button. Okay, the unmarked police cars Australian cops are driving right now. Our own Richard Berry uh, wrote a story uh, basically outlining the way the thin blue line is observing us uh, constantly. Um, we, we're here to offer some tips on what to look out for and actually fire up a discussion around the effectiveness of modifying behaviour through penalty, the whole uh, speed camera, that, that, that kind of philosophy. Um, and let, let's, let's kick it off with the, the whole um, technique of an unmarked police car. I don't know about you guys, but I've certainly been reading about not only are they unmarked, but uh, some have surfboards on the roof, bicycles on the racks, P-plates on the car, uh, don't assume anything, a police car could be of any type all around you. Where do you guys sit with the whole... I know in New South Wales, it used to be that uh, mobile speed cameras were marked with a little sign saying you're about to have your speed checked. You'd go through the process and then one saying you've just had your speed checked. Um, and since that's been done away with, the number of fines has gone through the roof. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, um, yes, you can also add canopies on the back of Ford Rangers. And uh, in terms of uh, not giving anything away, but the, the, down here in Melbourne, there are um, a couple of ranges getting around with just XLT, not even not even Wildtrak or Raptor spec. Um, <laughs> they're getting around with um, absolute, like they're white and uh, you own, it's the, you, gee, you need to have a keen eye. And I think this is one of the key differences between, um, say, Victoria and New South Wales or, or New South Wales and the rest of Australia. Uh, in Victoria, we've had years of no warnings for unmarked police cars or unmarked speed cameras. So we've become more adept, I think, at um, looking at the telltale signs. And gee, there's, you have to have a keen eye. Um, it's like, yeah, which we can talk about now or we'll talk about later. Oh, well, but, yeah. what, are, what are some of the high, what are the, some of the finer points that you, you would clock uh, well, as, yes, that's a police car? Yeah, well, uh, for me... Uh, Ever since I was a kid, I'd notice uh, Commodores, VL Commodores, Van Commodores, and and the equivalent Falcons as well, being slight, riding slightly lower. That was the first giveaway because uh, they, they weren't souped up in visually, other than the fact that they just sat that just that little bit lower to the ground. Did um, they not also have steel rims with that multi yeah, uh, yep. hold mm. design? Yeah, those slotters, those those the steel pressed steel things. Yes. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, the, the, you have to look at the parcel shelf at the rear. You'll see little lights that give it away. Um, also, uh, clearly, taxi style extra equipment on the dashboard uh, in the days of pre-tinting that was uh, that was a giveaway. Mm -hmm. But really, yeah, you just need to, you know, and generally always clean. 
which is nice that the, uh, the the girls and the boys in blue do take, uh, and the others in blue do take, um, you know, that sort of pride. And um, seriously. Tom, Tom, you're in New South Wales as I am, um, in Sydney specifically. Uh, what's your take on the on the difference between marking up um, a speed uh, trap, so called, um, and not? Oh, okay. I didn't realize we were going to open with the speed trap because they don't have things to say about unlock for these cars. But the speed Go trap. Go for it. No, whatever you want to do, it. that's fine. Well, we can start with the speed trap. That's fine. The speed yep. trap thing is ridiculous because now they're saying that there's going to be a backflip where they're not, they're not, they're going to show the signs again. Oh. Um, which I um, actually, I think there is a story in the works that we're doing on this as well. Bit of a Richard Berry opinion piece, I believe. All right. Um, where we're going to talk about um, how, uh, yeah doesn't not it's not a safety thing right it's and it's been proven time and time again that these things that like an unmarked an unmarked camera doesn't increase how does it increase safety because if if you're speeding on the day and you don't get the fine for two weeks right are you really then going to think oh damn i shouldn't have sped that day i think you're just going to think well damn the government you know yes well i think also i mean um I, read, I worked on a story with uh, Michael Stahl um, in a certain magazine that um, Byron will, will uh, reference later. And he made a very a salient point, I thought, was, look, if there's been an increase in fines, what about the commensurate increase in crashes um, and deaths? There's no relevancy there. Yeah. So it doesn't really add up um, in terms of a device to keep people safer. I think um, that that's uh, probably pretty true. And on the um, unmarked cars, it was funny um, we should bring that up because I was just having this conversation with a friend the other day about how if you're even remotely a car enthusiast, back in the days of Commodores and Falcons, it was really easy to spot them. Like you you knew what to look for. You'd have a little light strip in the grill, a little light strip on the parcel shelf. Uh, You know, they'd always be in a really suspicious, as you say, suspiciously clean, suspiciously low spec. Mm. But now... Um, uh, and I was talking to him as well, and he's like, "You know what? When I still see a really clean XR6, I get a bit scared. Get a bit he's like, I know they haven't been on fleet for years, yeah. but I still take three glances at them just to be sure. Well, and I do the same thing. FTX, no way, I don't trust them." Um, Richard, Richard, uh, in authoring the story, called out for Victoria that um, some that you might not suspect is a BMW 5 Series Touring. And a Mercedes-Benz all-terrain, um, yeah. the E400D. Who would have thought that would be ranging up in your mirrors? Oh, absolutely. Um, the BMWs especially, because the uh, the Mercedes is still <clears throat> fairly rare. I think there's only a handful of them running around. Um, but the BMW is now as common as you, right. back in the day when you'd see, you know, XR8s and, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, and SSs. So, yeah. Um, but the other car is the Volkswagen Passat. Uh, yes. n- nowadays, Passats are mm. so common as police cars. Um, some of them marked, many of them unmarked. Okay. That all Passats are now fair game as far as avoiding. Um, I, you know, I'm driving along on, you know, on the on the uh, on the on the M1 down here, and you see a Passat, or you're overtaking a Passat, especially a white one. And I think the only thing that gives it away that's not a cop car is uh, maybe a bowl hat at the back, or you know, something that. Uh, Conforms more to the typical uh, demographic of box of tissues. Yeah, box yeah. of tissues. Um, that, something that typically um, identifies those um, pretty boring well, cars. Ah, yes, I've thought it would be interesting memory. if any of our um, listeners yes. or viewers are actually current or, or former 
uh, police because I've often thought, how must it be getting around in a marked police car and everybody's behaviour around you is immaculate? You know, they're, they're keeping to the speed limit. They're observing every road rule known to, to man. And then when they go home in their personal car, you know, all hell breaks loose and they observe the real world. The, the difference must be quite stark. Well, I, I got to experience that because I did own a, a very uh, base spec uh, FG Falcon for a long time and people um, behave around you, especially on the freeway. I would, um, you know, be in the outside lane going around people and then you'd come up behind someone who would just then suddenly slow down because you're in an unmarked Falcon. Yeah, yeah. I must admit, I enjoyed that uh, until recently when I had my VF evoke oh, series yeah. two wagon and yes. unfortunately i sold it only a few weeks ago um but people would slow down around me in, in in that thing well particularly if you had a dash cam mounted front and rear that would add an air of intent wouldn't it mm, mm. it's a bit like that woman i think it was in australia might have been the states who was so tired of people speeding in her street that she got out the front put a what looked like a uniform and got the hair dryer and started pointing it at oncoming, <laughs> oncoming cars so that it became like a, a black spot for speeding. It's just her with a hairdryer. I thought that was inspired. That is, uh, that's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> now, how Queensland is this? Um, the previous gen Isuzu D-Max is um, seemingly the unmarked car of choice, although there are dark blue kind of ominous Subaru Lavorgs um, have been seen in Brisbane City. Have you spotted any of those in Victoria, Byron? Uh, no, no. Uh, our cars of choice are pretty are pretty uh, standard and uniform down here. Um, if you see a Mitsubishi Outlander, yep. a uh, any uh, Korean medium SUV, so we're talking Sportage, Tucson yep. uh, specifically, and also... Uh, uh, Nissan Pathfinders and Toyota RAV4s, they're all they're always basic spec, yes. which gives it away. Yeah. And they park on a they park just on the nature strip rather than in car parking spots. I think in Victoria, if you if you see a car on a nature strip and it's an, a modern car, yeah. rather than some clapped out EA Falcon or you know <laughs> or, yes. or VT Commodore, yeah. you've got to you've got to assume that's a speed trap. You just have to. Well, apparently South Australia is the Kia Sorento, and Richard was making the point he'd like to see a Kia Carnival um, as an unmarked <laughs> car. With the the ignominy of uh, the, the the being pulled over and booked by a Carnival, I don't know how you live with that. But anyway. the uh, the base D Max is interesting um, because we did put the I think there's going to be a story uh, this weekend, in fact, um, where um, at the launch of the new MUX, we put the question to them about fleet opportunity for the car and they didn't they, they mentioned that they had some interest from um certain government fleets and uh they didn't there was some that they didn't want to get on too much detail on and yeah. uh, this yeah. might be why you know i might yeah. police car duties yes um, yeah. yes but the whole thing of like having p plates and like a ladder on the roof or a surfboard or something that's pretty underhanded isn't it <laughs> mm. it's, it is yeah. you might say clever or you might say it's yes nasty subterfuge um, what, what, what annoys me is that we get pretty mundane cars. You, you see overseas, some of you know, in Italy, you know, it, over the years, the cops might get around in a Testarossa or, you know, a Lazio yeah. Stratos in the 70s. Or well, what about Dubai? And, do, yeah. Yeah, and the Dubai cars, tell us that about those, James. I can't recall. Don't you, isn't, that, isn't it Dubai where they have these 
um, you know, hero cars as they're, they're almost like a PR exercise that these exotic cars are used as police vehicles. Like Veyrons and stuff. Aventadors. Yeah, <laughs> the, the whole bit. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll try and dig up some photos. <laughs> that's that's nice. Yeah. Anyway, they're, they're well and truly marked. But mm. um, funny you talk about a lack of uh, exotic, the exotic nature of these cars. New South Wales, unmarked uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee SRT. And, and as much as they're used as highway patrol cars, uh, the 300 SRT would be an unmarked car as well. And I, for one, would like to see a Grand Cherokee Trackhawk um, with that Hellcat engine as an unmarked <laughs> patrol car. That would be fairly uh, traumatising. To see that coming up in your mirrors and all of a sudden sprouting yeah. red and blue lights. How perfect would it? Uh, I think a perfect would be a Jeep would be perfect to be on the side of the road as a, a marked car, you know, just on the side of the road there. Yeah. Just, yeah. Say no more. So, say no but more. but um, in the ACT, you know, Canberra, our, our nation's capital, M3 competition, uh, unmarked, 150 grand car as a pursuit vehicle. Um, and they also use, according to Richard, an M340i. So they've got a, a taste for some German performance down in the ACT. So make mm. sure you look out for those. Mm. Uh, it, and just let's rattle through WA, Toyota Prados. And Richard makes the point that there's 2.5 million square kilometres to police in WA, um, which is bigger than France, Germany and Italy combined. So uh, they use unmarked Prados over there. Yeah. Um, Tassie, uh, Subarus, Northern Territory, not sure. But I think it just raises the whole point of really to, to, to make our roads safer, I'd, I'd say it's about driver education. There seems to be a tremendous emphasis on speed as being the be-all and end-all. It's a very quick fix. If we can make people go slower, we'll be seen to be making our roads safer, whereas really it's an education thing, I think. Even though I've, I've had, uh, we've had one of our kids go through the whole licensing uh, process recently and it's improved a lot since it's my day and so it should, um, it's still largely about operating a car rather than driving, which is that much bigger um, concept of, you know, um, distance, um, anticipation, your attitude. It's very much can you do this, that and the other with the car. And to, to change that, and make it more challenging to get a licence and make it more of a privilege rather than just a, a rite of passage is difficult because it's expensive and it's a government thing, it's a political issue. And if you're going to do that, the payoff is so far down the track that it's unlikely that any current government wants to bite the bullet uh, and improve driving standards. It's much easier and uh, more efficient and expedient to just put a whole bunch of speed cameras out there and say, look at what we're doing on road safety the, um, you know, we've put this many speed cameras out into the field. So that's my view. Um, I don't know what you guys make of that. Well, I think there's all, also the element of, you know, speed cameras by their very nature um, discriminate against poorer people, um, you know, people who like literally just can't afford the fines, um, yeah. you know. And so while it's an easy tap, you know, to just sort of touch and go, okay, well, we just put, you know, heaps more speed cameras out there, whether they're unmarked or not. Um, and look, you know, it's made a difference and look at all these fines we've collected and all the rest yeah. of it. And, but you're right, it doesn't solve the underlying problem, which is expensive and difficult to solve. No. And it's what a lot of European countries have done in going the education uh, route and just making it more difficult to get a license. So you actually have to want one. 
Absolutely. And it, it takes a lot of doing things like um, you can't have your parents teaching you how to drive because that's just transferring what are potentially quite bad habits. Um, you have a, a uniform standard in terms of driving practice and, and philosophy, which is fantastic. It's quite expensive to get a licence in some European countries. And once you've got it, there's a sense of achievement. And all you have to do is drive um, in Germany, drive in Sweden, drive in various places. And the, the standard of driving is immaculate. It's, it's fantastic. And um, it, it's apparent that, that that has benefits in terms of road safety. Mm. Yeah. Um, I also think that um, having a degree of empathy with the consequences uh, and the wider, broader consequences of of um, not driving safely uh, works. And, you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, there were many reasons why the road toll started falling dramatically in Australia, and particularly, well, from my perspective in Victoria, because there were these uh, Transport Accident Commission advertisements which which would make you relate to the characters and what would happen Mm -hmm. to them. Um, For me personally, um, uh, one of my best friends is a fireman, and he once told me, Byron, I, I know you uh, can drive because that's your job as a road tester, but sometimes I wish that you would consider more the fact that people around you, um, a lot of people can't drive and they may not, they might be in a situation where they might have lost control of the car. So you yes. should drive in a defensive way. Always, always assume that, uh, that there might be a car careering through a stop sign or going through a giveaway sign or that sort of thing and just have that in the back of your mind. And, and, I, and I, he told me that years ago. And since yeah. then I thought, yeah, you just have to just be just on the lookout and on well, guard. I mean, Peter, Peter Brock, sadly, uh, no longer with us and he died in a competitive event. He was a, a huge proponent of road safety, on, uh, safety on public roads. And he always said that the, when he was putting that tongue of the seatbelt into the buckle, every time he thought this is by far the most dangerous thing I'm going to be doing today and I'm going to aim for the perfect drive. And he always thought about what I've translated it as, as Zen driving. Let it go. If someone cuts you off, let it go. Let them go and have their crash somewhere else. Try and just understand that it's not going to be ideal um, and get on with it. Leave it. Because I've gone down as many dash cam rabbit holes on YouTube as anybody else. And the, the standard response is a lean on the horn and the turning the air blue with, you know, how stupid these other people are. Everybody makes mistakes and I just try. I'm not perfect, but I just try and let it go, think about other people, and I reckon if more people did that, um, we'd, we'd possibly be in a better place. Mm. I don't know. Anyway, be, it would be great to get uh, people's feedback, uh, people that are listening, people that are viewing. Tell us what you think about this whole situation, but let's, uh, let's move on and move to our garage, but it's the depths of our garage. Um, down down the, the dark corners and particularly memorable drives, vehicles connected with it. Tom, you've got a very interesting one because just give us the backstory. You also had a very interesting job for a while that gave you access to, to certain cars. Yes, I was a, a valet driver for many years um, and I did get uh, the opportunity to steer some exotic vehicles um, for a long time, Um, some really different and interesting stuff that you would never normally be able to touch, let alone someone. And it was crazy. I think the craziest thing about that job was the people who would come in sort of regularly with exotic vehicles wouldn't think twice about the valet situation. 
they wouldn't think I'm handing a set of keys to a like absurdly expensive vehicle to someone who's clearly in, you know, their late teens or early twenties. Like there was just no thought yes. given to that. It was, it was yeah. wild. So, you know, cause if you walk into something somewhere like, you know, cl- classic throttle shop or, or, you know, a place like that where they have all these exotic vehicles, you know, you're barely allowed to get close to them, breathe on them, let alone well, you know, also, sit in the driver's seat. Also making the huge assumption that you were a genuine employee of the place, you know, you've <laughs> just been a well-dressed yeah. passerby. Um, you know, Cheech yeah. and Chong style, just throw the kids here, park the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, and look, you know, I, I didn't get to drive uh, the cars for long. You know, it was um, it, it was a sort of a five minute episode. And you, you, if it was something particularly special, maybe you'd you know take an extra lap around the car park, right? Oh, sure. um, just to sort of get a feel of the thing. And one car of all the cars I drove, I drove thousands and thousands of cars, but of, of the one car really stood out, and it was the uh, Ferrari F three fifty five. And I thought that car was um, particularly interesting because having, having, you know, by that point driven a lot of the more modern Ferraris and, you know, sat behind the wheel of a lot of the more modern Ferraris, sitting in that car, I felt like, oh, this is how a Ferrari is probably meant to fit. You know, it was light and small and compact and really reactive. And the, the, the particular one that I drove was perfect. It was in that the iconic red and had a gated shifter with the um, alloy head to it and everything, and it had a tan interior. It was, you know, it was the perfect example. And I remember feeling like that car was particularly special. It's and I've also you, driven the I one. I was going to say, sorry, the, on the, before you leave the 355, you mentioned it was like in an in-between car in terms of Ferrari's, uh, the chronology of Ferrari's history. It, a lot of people see it as the end of the old Ferraris, and some see it as the beginning of the modern Ferraris. You know, it, it, it actually fulfills both roles. Um, and they're hugely sought after now. They're, they're, um, they're a very valuable and appreciating kind of uh, car. Which is a shame because, of course, after driving it, I immediately looked it up and realised I probably would never be able to afford one. <laughs> right. um, but, yeah, you're right. I like because the way you I, say I, probably. Yeah. <laughs> There's still a chance. Yeah. <laughs> Good Don't on you take for, this away yeah, from hey, me. Dream, oh. dream big. Dream, dream big, Tom. That's what I reckon. <laughs> um, the, well, and, and that's very true because one of the other cars that I got to drive on that job was a 328 GTB and that car was like driving a very low tractor it yeah. was yeah. I think it's agricultural so is on the money there um, and just like it, it came from an era where the ergonomics of cars like that didn't make any sense like it was horrible to get into and then when you did get into it the top of the windscreen was literally like here so i had to like duck down to look out out of it and my driving position was like this yeah and the steering it felt like i was pushing the car sideways manually right the steering was so heavy and none of the buttons made any sense and i was afraid to touch anything because this car felt like it was going to fall apart at any second but and the, cl- and the clutch is like a techno gym thing and you know you you just <laughs> it's like a leg working out the left leg yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, it's a t- you're right. It's so, I've driven an old fiberglass body actually 308, and it's the same. It's not an enjoyable drive. Um, yeah, cool. Good point. Good point. We've yeah, got a lot that- to we've got a lot to be grateful to the NS Honda NSX for, haven't we? <laughs> Do you know that's interesting? I was part of a story once where we took some cars down to Phillip Island, uh, two of which were that original NSX um, and privately owned Testarossa. So it was a British car, blue, right-hand drive. 
And I remember driving that car on the circuit at Phillip Island and around Phillip Island as a road drive and the NSX. And in terms of just it's being docile and easy to drive, the NSX was like a Civic. That was the, the, the common judgment at the time. It was. It was just so easy to drive. Getting in that Ferrari and having a flat 12 engine just behind your ears, even just sitting still was an experience. That was an event. The theatre of that car was amazing. So the NSX flattered you. You could drive it quickly. It turned you into a superstar and it was a super capable car. But I would say, to Tom's point about the gated transmission and just the physical nature of finding a gear and then changing it, it was amazing. That was a real occasion to drive that Ferrari. They're markedly different, but uh, yeah, the NSX's civilizing um, influence in terms of supercars that came after it is well, not to be underestimated. But that canopy look, that canopy style kind of windows of the NSX, and also the fact that uh, no dashboard wrapped around you, like it was such a enveloping kind of design, oh, and yeah. it's super super low. Uh, yeah. dashboard and vast panoramic screen when you sat or when you sit in one of those cars. Surely yeah. that had its own um, futurism kind of theatre yeah. yeah. as well for you. Well, the, the NSX, the VTEC that was in its early stages, that was so brilliant. It, it allowed that engine to perform out of its weight division. You know, it was, it was really fantastic. The Testarossa was a car, it was an 89 model, I remember, um, it felt like it was a late 70s car in many ways and, yeah. and um, it was a throwback rather than being a contemporary car and the NSX put that into stark relief. You know, here's yeah. the future. Um, this is the past part. Driving it was... I remember going... It was a five-speed manual. I remember going from fifth to second on purpose, <laughs> um, you know, with a big double declutch in between. That thing sounded so great. Mm. Um, it... it you know, there was attributes. The NSX was just beautiful and brilliant and lovely to drive. The Testarossa was brutal and mechanical and physical and so involving in a different way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't help thinking that the NSX really also helped mould the car in your background there, James, the yeah. McLaren yeah, F1. Yeah, could have. Could have. It did. I think it, it did. I think it was it, – its, its creator did say that yeah. it was very – Influenced by the NSX. I think so. there's an element of that kind of, you know, horizontal panel work and stuff that's going on, especially at the back there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But in terms of the principle of, you know, the lightness, the, the, the purity of intent and purpose of the car. Yeah. I'm sure it was. I actually got to interview him um, down at the Australian Grand Prix one time at the end of the 80s. And I asked him for his best and worst cars of the 80s. And he said the worst, this is Gordon Murray, and, and the worst was the 700 series Volvo. He said, how can a company with so much money get a car so wrong? And the, and the other one was the, he loved the Renault Espace. And he said, I had a car very much like it in mind, but they beat me to it. He, he absolutely loved it. That was his best car of the decade. But, Fun fact, I owned a Volvo 700. <laughs> and you, I'm sure Not you a McLaren F1. What's that? <laughs> I thought you were going to say you owned an Espace, which would be extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, I would own an Espace, a Renault Espace, if, um, if I were available here. Now, thank you, Tom. Byron, we're going to an entirely different era um, for your dream drive or your memorable drive. Mm -hmm. Please fill us in. That's right. So um, one, one uh, I... Uh, have a history of writing with Wheels magazine and 
have had for a number of years. And uh, a few years back, uh, we did we decided to do a feature on uh, bucket list cars. So these are the cars that uh, you we we as motoring journalists have always wanted to drive but ha- um, haven't been able to. And we thought it'd be a great idea. So uh, there was uh, six or seven of uh, the staffers and contributors like me. Uh, we assembled at a uh, at a racetrack, and it was quite a logistical nightmare to organise these cars. And some of the cars we've spoken about uh, today, including a three five five Ferrari, I think, uh, was there. And so- someone wanted to drive a Falcon GT HO Phase Three, and yeah. um, and there was a Citroen Two CV in the mix as well, oh, yeah. um, amongst other cars. But I wanted to drive. I've always wanted to drive a Tucker Torpedo. That's a tricky one. That is a tricky one. And it was a little bit too <laughs> tricky for um, the, uh, the, yeah. uh, the editors to, to source. So, But my second car uh, on, on my list uh, was a Model T Ford. Now, of course, the granddaddy of all uh, uh, production cars, you know, it, it literally put the world on wheels. Uh, you know, there's nothing new here. But, you know, has anyone ever driven a Model T Ford? I asked around and people went, oh, no, no. A couple of the older guys um, knew people that did and that sort of thing. But no, have you, have you ever driven one? No. Um, boys, no, no. I've never had the opportunity. No. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so I, uh, I managed to uh, – we managed to find someone who got uh, – who uh, uh, procured one? Uh, yep. And it was a 1924, from memory, a 1924 example. So the car was in production from 1908 uh, through to 1927. Yes, and Henry Ford famously never wanted to change it. Yeah, That's right, yep. yeah, which uh, was kind of his downfall in some ways. or well, not yeah. downfall, but certainly he, uh, Ford. He went did, back to the pack. You know, he, he went back so to the pack. So far ahead, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, so this was, uh, it was a Canadian uh built one because uh, Ford Australia didn't start making cars until 1925. So this is a 1924 one. And to this day, it, it, it still, it still brings back, you know, fear and, um, and terror and excitement in equal measures. I think if I had to sum up how to drive a Model T Ford, it's that you just have to unpack everything you know about driving a modern car because nothing is where it should be in um, uh, compared to a contemporary vehicle. For instance, even though there's a steering wheel and there are three pedals on the floor, um, none of them. Well, the steering wheel obviously steers, so that's that's correct. Nice. Um, but yeah. um, you know, I, I wrote it down. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reading my own raw copy here. Um, it, when you climb into the car, you're you're confronted with um, cars where uh, the steering and seating arrangements are similar, but nothing else is. Uh, for instance, uh, there are uh, two wheel-mounted levers, um, which suggests that they're uh, meant to be conventional. But what you have to do is you, the the left pedal um, actually engages first gear, and you have to press it fully down. This is the clutch, what we would call the clutch pedal. So that engages first gear, and then you, um, the top gear is when uh, you depress it, but only after the handbrake lever has to be pushed forward, and then there's uh, you have to play around with the spark control, which um, yes, it's until retarded. That's spark. right, exactly. And then finally, um, the right pedal um, is slows the car down rather than accelerates it. So, and the brakes are usually is the middle pedal, 
um, and did, yeah, and, uh, rather and than the brake being the middle. Does, middle, that, middle, so. does that imply that there are two speeds? Was it a two-speed? That's right. So oh, it's a, it was right. a two-speed two speed thing. And basically, you, you take off in one gear and then you just kind of um, you depress a, like the clutch and it goes into the top gear and that's it. Right. So you're driving this car and and that's in a straight line. And that took about 20 minutes for me to learn that. And then I'm driving the car and it's on a closed track. And then I'm approaching the corner and I realized, gee, the steering is so heavy. Right. And you're sat not like SUV style. You're, it's like you're almost half a story up. It's like you're sitting on a, because these cars um, evolved from um, horse and carriages. You're really high up, like you're towering above. And you can't, you don't really get a sense of that looking at cars today because proportionally, um, you know, cars are all kind of the same, but you're, you're much higher than you are in say a Honda CRV or even a, you know, and then you turn the corner and the steering is so heavy, but conversely, it's really, really fast geared. So even a slight turn of the wheel and you're in a different direction. So suddenly you've got you've got understeer and oversteer to deal with, Perfect. and there are no brakes. And you think, oh, if I shall I slow down? But how do I slow down again? Oh no, I've got to I've got to <laughs> press down on something and depress something to slow down. That is horrifying. Some people could not get their head around it. So I was right. it was me and a couple of the other journos were the only ones that tried. Um, and f- at forty kilometers an hour, it oh. is. That would be terrifying. Very scary. I don't, and, and you watch old film. I mean, I'm an, I love old films, and you know, I, I think of myself as a bit of a historian. So I'm always looking at um, at old footage, and you see, you know, you see old women and you know, grannies and and granddads and that sort of thing driving around in Model Ts in heavy traffic in New York City in the 1920s and 1930s, and you think. Oh my God, that car needed so much concentration just to get it moving yeah, and to get, get it, it stopping. And, and, you know, I had, I, I came away from there thinking, Oh my God, I have a new respect, respect. for the way well, people Well, given drive. you were at a race circuit, did you record the lap time that you were happy with? Was, was there? Yes. I actually managed to get it up to probably 55 kilometers an hour. Wow. And, you know, you're almost a story up. You're on a car that is just, it it is, it's, I felt like I was not fully in control. Now, the owner of the car, um, and I recall his name was Jeff, he he took us, he took us for a few joy joy rides and he made it look easy. And, you know, but gee. I've sat in one. um, uh, Some eccentric brought one uh, into where I was a valet driver and uh, proceeded to leave it. Uh, in a lineup of cars on one side of the driveway and I was instructed to go and move it. And I went and sat in it and I looked at all those levers and couldn't even figure out how to turn it on. And I went, you know what, if I touch anything, I'm going to break something and it's going to cost a lot. So I'm just going to Did you just push it into a, you just left it? Just left it. I was like, no, I'm not touching that. And then I just went to the person who told me to go move. And I said, look, if you want to move it, you're welcome to try I think car crime was probably not such a big thing because hey. people didn't know how to. Here we go. There's a. Yeah. There's a uh, because people didn't know how to. Um, Unreal. To, and so to the drive. car, despite its Canadian build, was right hand drive. So was Canada right hand drive at that point, or I presume? Uh, no, no. So Ford Australia was owned and controlled by Ford oh, Canada, oh, Canada up until up, up until the late fifties. Ah, so they built them for Australia. For Australia, that's right. Um, yeah. And then and they actually set up shop in um, in Geelong. Yeah. In um in the oh, early to mid twenties, okay. and it, and so this which is why Ford 
Australia, uh, Ford, Australian Fords, even after they were, uh, were a mixture of um, uh, Canadian and British Fords because they also had a hand with the UK. Um, although, in the, because um, Henry Ford, uh, he, he didn't franchise, he basically franchised the brand in an in a old-fashioned sort of way. Um, that's how he spread across the world. Cool. So, well, anyway, that's amazing. That is so amazing. So that's, that's Tin Lizzie, and um, in the end, it was the car. The car even made it on the cover of the um, of, of the issue. It was uh, early 2015 issue Fabulous. of Wheels Magazine. Um, uh, it was basically me understeering. It looked like the car was going much faster, but gee, I will never forget. Good. And the smell, yeah. I I I implore every um, everyone out there to at least have a go safely in one of those, and then appreciate. Just the conformity and ease of a modern car. That's a great point. That's a great yeah. point. What a terrific experience. Well, thank you. I'll um I'll finish it off with a vehicle that has four wheels that has a steering wheel, but it's actually a tractor, and it's called the MB Track. And uh, a lot of our listeners and viewers will be familiar with the Unimog, which is an off-highway truck with insane capabilities in terms of covering terrain and taking people, things, and also is an agricultural um, implement. But this tractor evolved out of it called the MB Track. So uh, in the early 70s, four-wheel drive, equal size wheels rather than your big wheel at the back, tiny at the front, um, cab over the axle, in between the axles, and a range of engines and sizes. And I, as a junior burger in my first full-time job, was working with uh, Mercedes-Benz Australia, and uh, I went to a lot of rural ag shows and field days and had a lot of experience with these tractors. Now, some people listening, watching, will be farmers and they've got tractors and it's like, so big deal. I'm a total soft city guy who was not exposed to this kind of stuff. And it was really, really fun, super fun and easy to drive. You had air conditioning, stereo, power steering. It was a million miles away from a model test. Um, and things like turning up, Merck sponsored the Polo. So I had to turn up and put the flags up and the seats out and put vehicles on display. And in between chuckers at the polo, run a grid behind this tractor and knock all the tops off the divots that the horses and things would, would take off. And I remember a couple of kids came running towards me while I was doing this once, and I was about to shoo them away. Anyway, I stopped, opened the door, and they said, we want to ride in the MB track. I said, oh, you know what it is. Anyway, get in. Turns out it was my boss's boss's kids. Um, so that was a good career decision to actually let them get into the vehicle. Um, and I saw them working all over the place, farming, forestry. They even could be set up to work on rails. Um, Waverley Council had one to clean Bondi Beach. They had a, a, like a comb behind it to clean the, the sand. And they were super flexible. So you could have big floaty tyres on them, so low pressure and low impact. Or you could put big row crop, cropping wheels where you drive up and down the same bit of dirt. So you kind of sacrifice that and farm what's in between. Hugely strong platform. They had power takeoffs front and back, and you could mount something in the middle. So you could be doing one thing up the front, like cropping, then you'd have a spray tank in the middle and a sprayer out the back, or just all multiple processes in one pass. And um, we, I remember, used to do we used to do a a day for government utilities where people would just come along and try all of these vehicles, six by six trucks, G wagons, MV tracks, Unimogs. And I remember nearly filming my own death while I was filming an MV track because it had a, a spinning cutter on the front that would cut trees and then knock it down and spit it out as wood chips underneath the tractor. And I was just filming this tree and it started coming towards me and I realised it was about to, 
about to hit me. And if you see the footage, it's classic kind of shaky camera um, running away. But um, in the 90s, Merck realised it wasn't making as much commercial sense as they'd like, and they sold it to a company called Werner. So they still exist, but as the WF track, not the MV track, but um, also it's it's in the kind of collection of 50 vehicles that I've got that represent um, really special drives. And I, I just love it. I really always had a heap of fun um, with the MV track. James, which, um, did it give you any ideas about maybe having a tree change in your life? <laughs> no. No, <laughs> what it did, what it did uh, actually illustrate was how far agribusiness had come. You know, that this was a civilised vehicle with pollen filters and air conditioning and you could listen to the radio or stereo or whatever. So it took some of that really arduous nature out of just using a tractor as a very civilised vehicle. And even someone like me could drive it easily and work the hydraulics. It had fantastic hydraulic systems and high-pressure systems to run all kinds of things. I just... Loved it. I was amazed by it. I had no idea it existed, and uh, every interaction with it was a lot of fun. I see the um, on on the Wikipedia page. Uh, you have to search WF track because WMB track doesn't uh, d- uh, MB track doesn't come. Not up. a thing anymore. Yeah. No, um, but it's funny because most of the page is written about the the WB track uh, MB track anyway. Um, yeah. There's there's a version of a picture there, a version of it that runs on rails. Exactly. It looks, it looks awesome. And uh, it, you know, I, we, I wanted to see a picture and there it is. <laughs> in, in Europe, you often see Unimogs doing that kind of side of the road type maintenance, cutting down uh, the grass and brush and stuff to make sure uh, sight lines are clear. Um, they even use MV tracks for that occasionally. It's just such a versatile thing. It's classically mm. um, beautifully engineered and really creative in terms of what it can achieve. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder what the latest version would be like. You do you get yeah. the itch? We're talking late 80s here for this one. Yeah, moment. yeah. So um, do you get the itch to uh, probably, to probably electrify? Track. Yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, yeah, and I remember when we cleaned them for display, I always felt like we were mucking out the tractors. It was like, you know, brushing the horses or cleaning them down. We'd be hosing them out, making sure they were clean around the back there, underneath them, whatever. It was. Mm. Unreal, unreal fun. And, yeah, um, yeah they, they were different enough that it posed a challenge to sell them because people were used to their... International Harvester or their, you know, John Deere, where it was the big wheel at the back, and that was all very um, traditional and, and comfortable and safe. Whereas this thing was a new concept, and it was a bit of a challenge to sell. But I always loved it. How much were they? Oh, heaps. I don't know, but heaps. Um, but they would have been. I did go with a person. Um, there was a regional office in Dubbo in New South Wales, which is in the western part of the state, and he said he was going out to sell. Uh, come, on, come with me. We'll go and sell a tractor to these people that I, I regularly sell tractors to. And he'd worked for other brands before and he was able to convince them of this concept, I think, because they trusted him. <laughs> but uh, they bought into it. Um, and I think they were competitive on price. It was just that it was a different configuration and that people had to get their head around that. Yeah. yeah. Um, James, just uh, just quickly, um, one more thing about the Model T I just wanted to mention. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and that is I don't want people to think that I disliked the experience because hmm. after for about a year and a half or two years afterwards, I kept looking in the classifieds for a Model T. So just to let you know, uh, if just in case you're a, um, I loved that. I fell in love with that car. And it, my, that talking about it and then just thinking about it since in, in, in the last few minutes. You're going to start looking again. Yeah, I'm going to start looking again. And they weren't expensive. Like you can probably pick one up from about ten or 15000 
Well, if you can build up the stock in honest Matthew Darkus Motors, um, it may be a new revenue stream in times when it's hard to find a good, you know, well-priced used car, yeah, yeah. which, is, which is a wonderful segue into our feedback section because last week we were talking about used car gold mines and um, it was your story, Byron, <clears throat> and you'd called out various models that had, had appreciated pretty massively um, in price over the last few years. And the one that really seemed to strike a chord with a few people was FJ Cruiser. And Cyber Matt strikes. He died when he recently saw his FJ Cruiser secondhand for 46K in the dealership where he bought it new with a tow bar in 2014 for 46.5K after negotiating down from 53K asking price. Toyota couldn't give them away at the time. Yeah. So there it was, you know, what, six or seven years later, it's a fraction more than the price he paid for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and Hammer Rocks, he's been eyeing FJ Cruiser prices since 2019, and he's certain they're around 15 to 20K more now than they were pre-COVID. Mm. Um, it, it, it's a, it, and yet Ford won't bring the Bronco to Australia because they think right. that there won't be a market for it. It's nuts. It's nuts. Well, uh, de Kook, our old mate de Kook, said since the moment he knew he was moving to Australia, he moved to Australia from Germany, that's late 2019, he set up notifications for a VF2, V8 Commodore wagon, so the sport wagon. Um, if he'd asked one of his mates to get one for him in December 2019 before he arrived, I think, in early 2020, he said he could have had a 2016 model with less than 40K on the clock for an insane $38,500. These days... Not only do the notifications come far less often, but they start at 55K for cars with 100,000 kilometres on the clock and more. Um, and that's pretty much what you found as well, wasn't it, Byron? You had personal experience with a sport wagon also. Yeah, that's right. So um, I, I'd spent a while looking for one, and I wish I'd actually spent more and got a V8 Calais wagon because at that time you could – they started at about 25 or 26 not for a VF1, not a VF2. And yeah. maybe, and, and then the VF2 went started from about 30. So I'm talking about 2018, 2019. So the car had already finished production. And, um, and so, yeah, the, the, it was clear that they were going to rise. I got in, I got in uh, fairly, uh, I, got, I got a good price for the VF, but, um, and I think I sold it at a fair price. Mm. But um, if I bought a Calais V8, it would have been uh, it, now, better price. Yeah, I would have doubled my money. You know? Tom, is there part of you that wishes you hadn't sold your FG Falcon? No, it was time for it to go. Uh, oh, okay. I, no, it was. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I love that car, and it and it was a great car for many years. Um, but when I sold it, it was the right decision. Um, and the, when I sold it, to be fair, and this was before any any of this COVID, I, like I bought it, I bought it cheap. And so yeah. when I sold it, I sold it almost for what I bought it for. <laughs> so yeah. nice. no, no, nothing, nothing. I, I, I don't regret that decision at all. What I do regret right. is not immediately buying an SV6 wagon because as we're talking about, you, you just can't have one now. No. So because no. well, that was my thought when I sold it. I thought, oh, I'd love to have a wagon again. And well, um, I was looking around and I thought, oh, I do quite like the VF2. I feel like, you know, Holden finally got the Commodore right. And when I was looking... They were like, yeah, like early 30 grand to buy one. And this was well before COVID or anything. And uh, now you just can't get one. So I'll probably never own one now. A beautiful, I mean, a beautiful design. So clean, really well-resolved um, wagon, mm. that 
that sport wagon was such a great job. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, How about you, James? Did you did you get tempted? No, no, no. I've I've got all my eggs in one kind of car basket, which is a bit boring. But um, but anyway, I mean, there there was another group of people, which is interesting, talking about um, you know, do you keep it? Do you sell it? They're what I'm calling the couldn't find anything better group. And Geo Bloke drives a VF Series Two SS Ute and says you can't get rid of it um, as there isn't anything that comes close to replacing it. Even though cars with similar mileage are now twenty thousand dollars more than he paid. He's not going to part with it because he just enjoys that car and what it delivers to him. And JJ is holding on to his low mileage 2011 Orion Touring for a few more years. Can't find anything new with the same combination of power, space, cheap to run. Bill Catapotis, I agree, mate. He's got a 2010 Orion ZR6 with 100,000 kilometres on the clock. Um, and it, it's not broken, interesting name, says he just came back from a 600 kilometre drive in his 380. And says, I echo your comments. So he also obviously runs a neatly packaged city-sized Toyota. But um, there you've got the Toyotas and, and Mitsubishis of this world. People are holding on to those. Well, there's yeah. some weird ones out there, I think. Like the uh, Honda has quite a few of them. These kind of like cult hits. And there's only, they're, they're kind of rare cars. Not many people buy them. But they don't get rid of them. Like Honda MDX. They rarely come up for sale, and when they do come up for sale, they have like three hundred or four hundred thousand kilometers on it, and then the right. ad says single owner. Uh, wow. Thomas, that's because they didn't sell. Like I was, <laughs> they were a monumental flop. They were really expensive. But like preludes as well, like that, that like you know, you get those sort of two hundred, three hundred thousand kilometer preludes. They're on their first or second owner and stuff wow. like this. Like because really, isn't that the use by date? Isn't four hundred thousand kilometers time to put it in the? Business? That's <laughs> that's when a car has kind of done its job and it's worn out yeah well unless not, it's a not if you're a melbourne taxi driver not yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> now um <clears throat> the 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 final few comments i thought were were kind of funny um now reventon Rowe says it's a shame his 16 year old lancer is still worthless <laughs> he just <laughs> bought a tesla so the extra cash uh, if it were desirable uh, would have come in handy. And Paul, without naming what his car is, says, I think mine's a sinkhole. So obviously he's uh, found some kind of money pit. But but we also had a couple of comments. We've got a, a running kind of discussion going around electric cars. We touched on hydrogen. I know that's um, close to you at the moment, Tom. Um, Marco Vess, I know he's Marco Vess, but I call him Marco Vess. Um, he says, having owned a Model 3 for two months, Unless he buys one last manual petrol sports car, he can't see himself going back. Quote, it's that good. Um, if you like the way Aussie cars drove with bags of low-end torque, you'll love electric. He says, love the show, guys. Keep up the good work. So thank you, Marco. And um, Bill Catapotis agrees with the idea that you can only buy what's being sold. We were talking about um, the notion of um, it was a comedian in the States being uh, criticised for wearing flared pants in the 70s. And he said, that's all you could buy. That's all that was in the stores. You couldn't get other pants. Um, says the world's car companies are jumping over themselves to catch Tesla and satisfy fast-moving emissions reduction laws globally. So I guess we won't have a choice. As prices of all manner of low or no emissions cars come down, our tastes will inevitably change. What do you make of that? That, that it's a chicken or the egg, you know, will the... The force majeure causes to change our appreciation of what a desirable car is, or will some people stick it out and still want to have um, an older style car where the market might go? 
Well, I think, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, a lot of newer, I mean, like uh, electric cars that are coming out now, Tesla Model 3 is a sedan. How weird yeah. is that? Yes. Like, shouldn't it be an SUV? Well, um, and it's the same with like Toyota Mirai. That's a sedan as well. Why? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I think Toyota says it's a, you know, once in a generation shift towards mm-hmm. this like electrification. I think they're right. And it'll be interesting to see what comes out the other side. Tom, I think they're sedans because the two or three largest markets in the world That's still, still uh, with, with money, yeah. with money, want to be chauffeured and probably and prefer sedans, which is, you know, obviously North America, China and China. Um, and others. Even even <laughs> even Korea and Japan though are still big sedan markets. Like like you go over to Korea and like everyone's driving yeah. sedans. They have like multiple like Hyundai and Kia sedan classes that we don't even get here. Yes, mm. yes, that's true. Yeah. All right, well, look, thank you, guys. With that, we've reached the finish line. Uh, oh. So thank you, Byron. Thank you, mate. Thank you, Love Tom. It. Thank you. And thanks to our production whiz kid, meme Viking and holder of all six Infinity Stones, Mr. Pritchard, for his commitment to the Cars Guide podcast cause. Today, he's wearing a T-shirt saying, my body is a temple in which many pigs have been sacrificed bondage pants, and steel cap thongs. Some may call them flip-flops, but they're bloody safe, no matter what you call them. Um, Jump into the conversation. Cars Guide is on Facebook and Instagram, or email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. Apple podcast listeners, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Five stars is the preferred rating, but uh, let us have it, even if we're not at five stars. So uh, we can't fix what we don't know about. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to subscribe to Cars Guide on YouTube. And uh, that's so you can stay on top of all our our latest content. But before we go, a bloke's working the neighbourhood for odd jobs and knocks on the door of the posh place at the top of the hill. The owner hands him a can of Dulux and a two-inch brush and says, go around the back and paint the porch. An hour later, old mate goes to the front door to be paid and as he's leaving, says to the owner, by the way, it's not a porch, it's an Aston Martin. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs>